0: Good morning, and to that again. It's a wonderful privilege to be here with you this morning and uh, for the next uh, two days uh, for us to share together in the Word of God uh, during this conference. Thank you, Pastor Rick, and uh, the leadership of this church for the privilege for me to join you. Um, and. you. Uh, For those of you who might not know, I actually live in the U.S., so I didn't fly in from Nigeria. So don't feel too sorry for me that uh, um, I haven't been sleeping. It's just uh, an hour, from me, an hour and a half from Charlotte to get here. Um, And the time is the same. So um, thank you so much for the opportunity to join you um, this week as we reflect on this whole Uh, Theme of rekindling our passion for Jesus, rekindling our passion for Christ. I think this is a very important topic at this time in the life of the church, and especially in the life of the church here in Canada. Um, I, like you heard from uh, Pastor Rick, uh, I've had the privilege of being associated with the church in Canada for a long time. In fact, so long before I was even born, <laughs> because uh, as you heard, uh, there were people from Canada that God had used in bringing the, the good news of Jesus Christ to my part of Nigeria. But not only that, God also used Canadians in my own journey of faith uh, as a high school student when I came to faith in the Lord Jesus And I also had the privilege of getting some of my training here in Canada. So it's been a a place where God had continued uh, to shape me. But I think it is important for us at this point in the life of the church and in the life of each one of us to perhaps sit back and take stock again. Do we still have, at this time, that passion that we're talking about here? Rekindling your passion for Christ. The verse that uh, we have taken as the the foundation, the the verse for this uh, conference is Psalm 95, 7 and 8. And the abbreviated part uh, we're reading says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. As we talk about a passion for Jesus, a, a love and passion for Christ. You know, I, I don't know if, if, if it happens to you, but I know it happens to me sometimes as I listen to messages and sometimes I'll be wishing like, oh, I wish so-and-so were here to hear this message. I wish this person is hearing this now because I think that that person needs that message at that time. And sometimes I probably think they needed it more than I do. I think this passage is saying to us this morning that each of us needs the Word of God and each of us needs this message at this time. If you hear His voice, do not harden your heart. And I don't know what the Lord will say to you this morning and I don't know what area of your life the Lord might point out. But May may I say this? If the Lord is pointing something out to you, it may be a time to begin to deal with it. I have decided, divided my the sessions. I'm going to be taking to today, talking about what I have titled "Greater Love Has No Friend Than This." Of course, that's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, "Greater love hath no man than this, than, a, than that a man should lay down his life for his friends." But when a man has laid down his life for his friends, what should the friends do? How should the friends respond? So the one who laid down his life for them. And tomorrow, by God's grace, Monday night, we're going to look at what I've titled Compelled by Love, Above and Beyond in Passion for Christ. Uh, We'll be speaking from 2 Corinthians 5, uh, 11 to 21. And on Tuesday, we'll we'll wrap up with what I've called The Cross, A Place to Die. And we're looking at Christ's own word himself, How does He describe what our passion for Him should look like? What our love for Him should look like? So that's Monday and Tuesday. But today, we're going to reflect on this. Greater love has no, what I've called greater love, has no friend than this. How should we, the one for whom He died, respond to His love for us? Let me read from Philippians chapter 3. I'm just going to read verse 10. Verse 10. And I would pray, Philippians 3, verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Let me pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity we have to gather like this before you to share in your word, to worship, uh, to listen to one another, to listen for your voice. And I ask now that you will speak to each one of us. I just really ask, Lord, that at this hour the Holy Spirit will take charge, the Holy Spirit will speak to into our hearts, that I will diminish and Jesus will increase. That your word alone will be what your people will hear. That you will be glorified in the garden of your people. Thank you, Father. We praise you, we honor you, we welcome you here, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. In that video you just watched, it's a video of a group of Iraqi Christians in Jordan. Uh, In July, Joanna and I, my wife, had the privilege of visiting our team in in Jordan and getting to meet with some of the pastors and people who are providing uh, pastoral care and support and service to these Iraqi brothers and sisters. And their testimony touched my heart. Because for all the news that I get in the US, <clears throat> for all I see on the television, ISIS was the worst that could have happened to the Middle East. But my heart changed. When I listen to these brothers and sisters say, thank God for ISIS. Thank God for ISIS. These brothers and sisters brought a whole different perspective to what is a horrible, horrible situation. And so one of them said there, ISIS can take our jobs. ISIS can take our houses. ISIS can take our, you know, our, our cars. That Isis cannot take our faith in the Lord Jesus. And it is that kind of a passion for Jesus that we're talking about this morning. A passion, a love for Jesus that nothing can take and nothing can replace. A passion, a love for Jesus that no circumstance of life can diminish. That's what we're talking about this morning. The, the Apostle Paul, I, I, I titled it the confession of a consummate missionary. Because here is a man who has known and, known and loved Jesus. Still talking about knowing Jesus. In this writing to the Philippian church from chapter 3 verse 1. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me and it's a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. You see, Paul was writing to a church that he helped find. The church in Philippi was a church that Paul planted. And in fact, if you go back to the story of the planting of this church in Acts chapter 16, it was interesting because you find out that this was the church that resulted from what we usually call the Macedonian call. Paul, in a vision, saw a man of Macedonia saying to him, come over to Macedonia and help us, in Acts 16. That was after... Paul had tried to go into Bithynia, and he said the Spirit of Jesus didn't permit us, and then they tried to go into Asia, and he said the Holy Spirit prevented us. But then in a dream, or in a vision, he called the Bible called it, he saw a man of Macedonia saying to him, come over to Macedonia and help us. The very first place he landed in Macedonia was the city of Philippi, and that is the city to which he was writing. The church that came out of that visit, Of course, you know in the life of Paul his walk with the Lord was just amazing because I I, I used to tell people, you see as a missionary if I had seen a vision of a man of Macedonia calling me to come and walk in their country, when I get to Macedonia, when I arrived in Philippi, I would have started a men's fellowship. You see because it was a man that I saw in my vision. All of my strategies would be how to bring the men to faith in Jesus. But you know When your passion and your love for Jesus is such that you seek to know him, you're working with him, you let him just do what he wants to do. Interestingly, when Paul arrived in Philippi, the very first converts were not men. In fact, the very first people they shared the gospel with were not even men. It was women. Surprise, surprise. And not only that, Remember, Paul wanted to go to Asia. The very first woman convert in Macedonia, that is in, in Europe, was an Asian woman. Lydia was an Asian woman. It was a, a woman, a seller of purple from the city of Teatira. So, in other words, this church came out of a very unusual type of ministry. A a very specific work of the Lord. And this was the church to which, which Paul was now writing. Paul, at this point, had been in ministry for probably about 30 years. And he had planted many other churches. But this church was one church that Paul recognized as a church that participated in the gospel with him. He, he said to them, you have been a part, participant or a fellowship or a, 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 a partner in the gospel with me from the beginning. And so this church is the church that he was writing to. And when you look at the way he started this chapter 3, it was very interesting, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same thing again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Rejoice in the Lord. And you ask yourself who is writing this letter, urging others to rejoice in the Lord? It was a man in prison. A man in prison, writing to those outside the prison, telling them to rejoice. It like Paul and those brothers, those Iraqi brothers and sisters have something in common. If a man in prison can write, rejoice, rejoice. And men and women who had lost everything, even their families to ISIS can say, thank God for ISIS. Then you know something is really different about these people. There is this something about their relationship with Jesus that is totally different. Rejoice in the Lord. Paul had something in this relationship, in his passion for Jesus, that is beyond what he can get and how life can go smoothly for him. It's a joyful passion that glories in Christ. A joyful passion that glories in Christ. In verse 4 he said, although, excuse me, from verse 3. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. We are the true circumcision. Of course, writing this letter, Paul was addressing a particular issue that was coming up in the Philippian church. And the people that were called the Judaizers, uh, they had come into this church trying to kind of convince people that salvation in Jesus is incomplete without something else. It was belief in Jesus. It was faith in Jesus plus. And Paul was saying to them, no, it was Faith in Jesus and in Jesus alone. You see, they were telling them that apart from putting your faith in Jesus, in order to be saved, you also need to be circumcised. And Jesus, Paul was correcting that. But perhaps even in the church today, we have some form of this or another. Some form of Judaizers that says that it's faith in Jesus plus Something else. Or maybe even in our own lives, we have embraced that idea that, so we have to do something to impress God. We, we have to do something more. It's not just faith alone. It's, just, it's also activities. It is the things we do to impress God. Brothers and sisters, we cannot impress God. We cannot do anything to improve on the love of God for us in Christ. Because he loves us totally. He gave himself for us already. He's not going to improve on that. It's already done. So it's not faith and. It is faith alone. Because he said you, by, by grace you are saved through faith. It is not your own work. It is the work of the Lord. Paul, writing to the Romans, he said, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for all those who believe to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles. It is the power of God unto salvation. This faith, this faith that results in a passion for Jesus It's not a faith that you make up. It's not a list of precepts. It's not a list of laws. It is a relationship. And it's a depth of relationship that nothing can shake because it is the power of God unto salvation. I think today the tendency is for us to, to kind of make the faith of Christ into some academic exercise where we have a list of things in our head, and if we agree to that, then we are saved. No, you are not saved by the things in your head. You are saved by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we evangelicals fall into this trap where we have a list of things that if you do these things, or if you agree to this list, then you are all right with God. No, it's not faith and. It is faith alone. and the complete work of Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection, that is the relationship that brings us into that, this particular passion and love for Jesus. In verse 4, Paul said, although I myself might have confidence. So he was talking out, these people are telling them, you have to be circumcised. Paul was saying, no, you don't need to be circumcised. And if those people think they have something to boast of, I have more. He said, although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel... Of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. Wow. What a credential. Think of those credentials that Paul just presented here. I mean, it's like this guy has it all. He, He had it together as far as... Being a Jew was concerned. He was circumcised on the eighth day. What can be better than that? I mean, that's like I participated in the Abrahamic covenant with God. Because the circumcision was the, was the, was the sign that sealed that relationship between Abraham and God. God commanded Abraham that all the male that were born in his house, and all his generation must be circumcised as a demonstration of that relationship with the living God. And Paul said, I am a part of that covenant. I was circumcised on the eighth day. And it was of a tribe of Benjamin, a nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. Remember, the first king of Israel came out of that tribe. Saul was of the tribe of Benjamin. So Paul came from a a fairly respected tribe in Israel. A Hebrew of Hebrews. In fact, he distinguished between himself and other Jews because at this point, there were Hellenistic Jews. People who speak the Greek language and had kind of adopted the Greek culture. And Paul was saying, look, I am the real thing, okay? When you're looking for Hebrew, I am the real thing. A Hebrew of Hebrews. Interestingly, when Jesus met Paul on the road to Damascus, you see, when Jesus was alive, the language they spoke around that time was Aramaic. Remember, on the cross, he spoke in Aramaic. But when he met Paul on the way to Damascus, Paul tells us, Jesus spoke to him in the Hebrew language. In the Hebrew language. Which in a way is an affirmation of what Paul was saying here, I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. A Pharisee, as far as the law was concerned. In fact, in Acts 26, Paul said that I belong to the strictest sect of our religion. That's, I, I belong to those who keep the law to the letter. I have so much to, be, to boast of. As for the zeal, persecuting the church. Paul didn't believe in the resurrection. Okay, you might say, what are you talking about? The reason Paul was persecuting the church was because Paul did not believe in the resurrection. He was going to get everyone that believed in the resurrection of Christ into prison before he met Jesus. So imagine the kind of theological, radical theological transformation that Paul went through the day he met the Lord Jesus. That everything he had believed was turned upside down. No wonder he had a passion for this Jesus. Who knows what he knew about the resurrection experience of Jesus. I mean the the, the, the crucifying experience, the crucifixion experience of Jesus. So he said, I asked for zeal. I was so zealous for my faith, I was persecuting the church. As to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. Wow. That's amazing. He had so much to live for. He had so much that should keep him from living for Jesus. He had so much he could boast of. But then he had a passion and a love that will lay it all down for Christ. In verse 7, he said, But whatever things were I gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and counted them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. Wow. So all these things, Paul, Canted nothing. He canted nothing. His education, I mean, a Pharisee of Pharisees, probably memorized the Old Testament. He said, That is nothing. A Hebrew of Hebrews, nothing. A circumcised member of the Jewish community, that's rubbish. Because of Jesus Christ, my Lord. Wow. I ask you, what is it that you're willing to lay down because of your passion for Jesus? Do you share this kind of love and passion for Jesus? See, because unless we share this kind of love and passion, we're not going to care about what Jesus cares about. And unless we care about what Jesus cared about, the lost, will never hear that good news. Let me ask you, if we were to distribute a white sheet of paper here, and you have to write down that thing that you don't want God to ask you to give up. Just think about it for a minute. That one thing that God, you don't want God to say, Give this one up, what will it be? What is it you are not willing to give, in, to give up for Jesus? What is it you are not willing to lay down for Jesus? What is too precious to you that you will not want Jesus to ask for it? Is it where you are living right now? Is it a job you have? Is it your family? Is it your position in society? For many of us, it will be comfort. And I tell you, that's one of the greatest problems of the church today, particularly the church in North America. You see, persecution does not kill the church of Christ. Persecution purifies the church of Jesus Christ. You had those brothers and sisters there. They, were, they lived and they were still living under persecution, and they were testifying that all those things can be taken away from them. But Jesus cannot be taken away. A passion for Jesus, a love for Jesus that's not willing to lay down everything like Paul, is a love and a passion that does not yet know who Jesus is. Because when you know Jesus the way Paul knows him, you recognize that there is nothing that is worth holding back. You see, the church has bought into a life of comfort. In fact, whether we're evangelicals or well, name it, claim it, I think we've all bought into some form of a wealth kind of faith some kind of prosperity kind of faith where we want the good things. We want to stay where life is comfortable. We don't want God to ask us to step out of our comfort zones. The people that Pastor Rick mentioned went out to my part of the world. They gave up everything. The pioneers of S.I.M., who went to my own country, who passed through my very state, were only 25 years old, 23 years old, and 21 years old. They were young people. None of them was married. None of them. But they loved Jesus. They had a passion for Jesus. In fact, the way they were described was they loved Christ and they loved the lost. They stepped out. They were warned. When they arrived in Lagos, they were told that they cannot reach the interior because it was too dangerous. They were not deterred. In about a year, two of them were dead. Within a year, Gowan was dead, Walter Gowan, and Thomas Kent was dead. The 25-year-old, he died at the age of 26. The 23-year-old, he died at the age of 24. And only the 21-year-old, who was now 22 years old, Roland Bingham, was left behind, sick. The reason was that he was already sick in Lagos when the other two moved inland. And he returned to England and returned to this very country. And mobilized and raised another set of workers. Another set who loved Jesus more than everything and anything else. To go to a place where others had just died. What is it that Jesus is asking you to lay down? What will he be asking you to write on that paper? Or what will you be writing on that paper to say to Jesus, please, just don't take this one thing. Or maybe for you it's three things. Paul said he counted all these things, nothing. Just for the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus. Wow. The surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus. Then in verse 9, I may be finding him Not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. A love and passion that lays it all down. He recognized the love of Christ. And he was willing to lay down all for the one he loved. He was willing to express his passion for the one he loved. He recognized all that Christ had done for him. He said the surpassing value of knowing Christ. Mission flows out of a love and passion for Christ. You see, the cross was no joke for Christ. I think in the world today, we bought into a love that is kind of like a, a warm, fussy feeling thing. Love is about a warm, fussy feeling to one another. If I have a warm, fussy feeling to somebody towards somebody, then I love the person. And if I don't have that feeling anymore, then I don't love them anymore. Isn't that why we have so much divorce, even in the church? But the cross was not about warm, fussy feeling. I tell you, brothers and sisters, there was nothing warm and fussy about the cross. It was pain, it was suffering, it was determination, it was commitment, it was a willingness to lay down a life. And that's the kind of passion we're called to present, to show to Jesus. It's the kind of love we are called to show to Jesus. It's not going to be about being warm and fussy. It's going to be being determined, committed, willing to suffer, willing to endure pain. And that's what he was talking about in verse 10. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being conformed to his death. That I may know him. Brothers and sisters, think about this. This man had encountered the resurrected Christ on the road to Damascus. In fact, he had written other testimonies about being taken out of the body or perhaps up to the third heaven. He wrote that to the Corinthians. He had testified about having seen Jesus like the one that is, the, the last apostle, he described it as the one that was abnormally born. This same man, 30 years later, was now writing that I may know him. What a passion, what a love for his Lord. That I, may know him. How can Paul still be writing at this stage in his life, imprisoned for the very Jesus he loved, and still writing that he wanted to know this Jesus even more? What more was he there to know about Jesus? Except that Paul never felt like the passion and the love for Jesus ever reached a limit. There was no limit to knowing Jesus. A man in prison was writing that I may know him and the fellowship and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. What more does he want to suffer? So when we talk about a passion for Jesus, a love for Jesus, what kind of image does that create in your mind? When we talk about reviving our love for Jesus, what are you imagining that was going to look like for you? Because here was a man in prison for his love for Jesus, still writing from prison, that he wants to know this Jesus even more. Even more. I think most of us are very comfortable with praying the very very first part of that passage. And I have prayed it many times that I may know you and the power of your resurrection. Who doesn't want to know the power of his resurrection? It's a wonderful thing, isn't it? In our lives, in our experiences, and in our situations, we want to experience the power of his resurrection. Well, how many of us pray to know the fellowship of his suffering? The word there translated fellowship, so also can be called community or communion. An intimate relationship. Somebody described it as a dance. You want to dance with with Jesus in his suffering. Helen Roosevelt, a missionary to the Congo, was sharing about her particular take on this passage in one of her messages. And she said, for a long time, she quotes this passage and stops at the power of the resurrection. And then the insurrection came in the Congo, and she was taken captive, and she suffered unbelievable and things that cannot even be talked about. And in those suffering, in those moments, this passage came to life for her. And then she recognized the fellowship of his suffering. And then she said, and under my breath, I prayed. That I may be conformable to his death. The fellowship of his suffering. Many of us don't want any part of that. But for your passion and love for Jesus to be what it should be. To come alive, we must be willing to to share in the fellowship of his suffering. And I don't know what that is going to look like for you. I don't know what it is like for you right now in Canada. But I know that that kind of a faith is a faith that you cannot hide. A fellowship, a passion, a love for Jesus that's willing to share in his fellowship or the fellowship of his suffering is a faith that is alive. And a faith that's alive is a faith that cannot be private. No, you cannot hide a passion like this, because it's a passion that's willing to suffer, willing to pay the price, to fellowship with Jesus, not only in the power of his resurrection, but also in the fellowship, in the dance, in the intimacy of his suffering. This week is about our passion for Jesus. That passion, renewing that passion, we have to cost us something. If it doesn't cost you anything, then you know that it's not what the Bible is talking about. That faith, the renewing of our passion and our love for Jesus must cost us something. It cost Paul everything. What are you willing to give up for that? Because he went on to say, "I'm going to wrap up in verse 12. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus." In verse 13, he said, <clears throat> talked about this one thing I do, forgetting that lies behind. And reaching forward to what lies ahead. And in then verse fourteen said, I press on toward the goal of the price of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. What was that upward call of God? In Acts thirteen again. I mean in Acts twenty six. From verse 17, from verse 16, Paul tells us that when he encountered the risen Christ, Jesus said to him, I'm sending you to them, that you may bring them from darkness to light, from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Interestingly, he concluded that statement by saying, I have not been disobedient to the vision from heaven. What is the upward call of Christ for you, And how will your passion for Jesus demonstrate that? Greater love have no friends than this, that they will live out their passion and their love for the one who died and rose again for them. Do you love Jesus? Do you truly love Jesus? Do you love Jesus in your head, in your mind, mentally? Or do you love him in your heart? Do you love him emotionally? What will Jesus ask you to lay down? What will it cost to show your passion and love for him? Let me pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your people. Thank you for the privilege we have to respond to you. I pray now that our hearts will truly align with yours. And our spirit will respond to yours as we lay it all down. That we may live out a life of passion and love for Jesus. Wherever you have called us. In Jesus' name. Amen.
1: As I was listening to Dr. Joshua this morning I was reminded of an occasion in my own life about 30 years ago, a little over 30 years ago when I was challenged by the Lord in one of those times of whatever, whenever, wherever and I made that general passionate commitment to the Lord. It wasn't very long until he began to chip away at all the specifics that come along with those questions whenever whatever wherever and ask me to start laying down those things the family place position every second in our world someone dies and the majority of them die without Christ So, what kind of a passion will it take to make a difference in our world? It won't just be a general commitment. It will be by people who are willing to lay down the plans they had for tonight and come here instead. It will be people who have decided that the comfortable couch this coming Monday night should be laid down in favor of coming here to this conference. It'll it'll be by people who are making a general passionate commitment to the Lord this morning, but who will lay down whatever they had planned on Tuesday night at 6.30 to be here. Every second in our world, somebody dies, and most of them without knowing Jesus. And it will take more than a general passion. It'll require laying down the comforts of this life to honor the call of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our Father, I pray that we will not be a people who talk about how much we love Jesus in our heads and how passionate we are in general. But where you knock on our hearts and ask us to lay it aside so that we can honor your call in our lives, we will respond. We will be people who will consider everything we have as loss for the awesome privilege of having Christ, the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, that we may be conformed to his image and experience his death and his resurrection. For Jesus Christ, I pray, amen. Amen.